I do quite like how um, I accidentally asked a question which took us from happily talking about Santa Claus to talking about murderers at the door. <laughs> um, <laughs> Today's episode is our Christmas special. Jasmine and I are talking to Dr. Glenn Pettigrove, the Chair of Moral Philosophy at the University of Glasgow. Today's topic, we wanted to talk to you about the ethics of lying to children when it comes to the existence of a certain white-bearded, jolly man who lived at the North Pole. So here are some thoughts on white lies and whether or not they can be justified for the sake of Christmas. What are anyone's first thoughts on this? Because it's something which you grow up talking to everyone about and then one day, I think we are going to have to have a content disclaimer saying perhaps not for the ears of children (laughs) under the age of 12 or something, but you grow up believing it and one day you realise that you're, or you become disillusioned. So what's your first thought on that, Glenn? So I suppose alongside the ethics of lying to children, there's also the question of the ethics of telling the truth to children. Were we inviting my cousin to participate in this conversation? She would be telling you that I ruined Christmas for her by disclosing to her the non-existence of Santa Claus. (laughs) And although she's only a few months younger than I am, she still hasn't quite forgiven me for this disclosure. I, I had to break the news to my older sister, actually, so um, she was not happy with me. <laughs> I thought that was a, a really, really interesting point that you brought up in your email to us. You've decided to never go into that with your family. So you just have always been completely transparent with the S word, the Santa concept, which I thought was really interesting because with my family, for example, we still to this day, I'm 21 years old, my sister is 23, we still wholeheartedly go forward every December with the, yeah, the idea that Santa is completely real. My parents never told me that 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 he wasn't real. So would you say that my family situation had an adverse effect, as opposed to um, someone who was always completely honest with their children? Well, let's sit and diagnose whatever problems might be there in your family. Um, So, no, of course, I don't think that there's anything that your family has done that we should look upon with suspicion or anxiety. But for me, it was really important that there not be a point in time in my children's life where they could turn to me and say, you betrayed me. I couldn't trust you. I thought I could, but it turns out I can't, right? So for me, I wanted to make sure that however we embraced the story of Santa Claus, we did so in a fashion that was entirely consistent with them seeing me as enduringly trustworthy. So earlier you were talking about that there's a distinction between actively lying to your children and merely being honest with your children. Um, and I feel like with the idea of honesty, I think the, there's th- this intuition that um, if you're fully honest, you just do not lie. But when it comes to brutal honesty, sometimes that could be quite damaging. So um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that. So I don't think that 
the way of thinking about honesty that says the honest person never lies is the best way of characterizing the kind of quality that we appreciate in people regarding truth-telling. The kind of truth-telling that we look for in the people we admire is the kind of truth-telling where they take us to be partners with them in a cooperative venture, where we're trying to understand, where we're trying to show respect, where we're trying to extend trust and build relationship. And when what we're concerned with is building trust and strengthening a relationship, then there can be those rare occasions where the right thing to do, the thing that enables our friends to rely on us most consistently, is dissemble. So that when asked, does this outfit make me look old or fat or whatever, you know, and there's no occasion for changing, the right response probably isn't yes, even if that's what someone happens to be thinking. Maybe there's some technical jargon that could be um, useful to sort of pick apart. So is there a difference that our listeners should be aware of between the word lying and the word dissembling? So I'm using dissembling to cover not just those instances where I tell an untruth, but also those instances where I avoid telling a truth that has been asked for. Thank you. Yeah, I think that is um, a handy distinction to be making. What is it which you feel um, makes it the case that a white lie could potentially be harmful other than the fact that it is it just the fact that it sort of contributes to this lack of trustworthiness? I guess it it also contributes to the kind of relationship that exists between us. So there are ways of thinking about truth-telling and lying that think of each particular instance where one could say something, one thinks, all right, what is the honest thing to say here? But of course, that's too simple a story because there can be ways in which I might quite honestly, uh, that is in the simple sense of not dissembling or lying to you, withhold information to which you might feel you were entitled or that you'll be hurt if I don't share with you in the context. And so if what we're interested in is the kind of disposition with respect to sharing information with others that we admire, then we need to think about all of the factors that go into our admiring some people. And so the person who cannily avoids answering, but withholds all of the information, even if they never utter something that is false, might still strike us as a little smarmy when it comes to their use of truth, even though they haven't lied. And if asked, are they honest? We're probably going to shrug at some point. Well, yeah-ish. So the crucial factor for me, I think, is to identify a whole range of things that we care about. And some of those things that we care about are about propositions. Is the proposition that somebody uttered something that is true or that they believe is true? But some of the things that we care about are things like, can I rely on you? Do you have my best interests at heart? Are we 
in a relationship where if you disclosed to me your reasons for answering the way you did, I would continue to appreciate this relationship and you in this relationship and think that you were someone I could rely on. And when it comes to answering that kind of question, are you somebody I can rely on? Sometimes the way to yes as an answer to that is not by uttering the truth I know, but instead by perhaps avoiding uttering the truth I know. One question that I would have is how then that ties into our Christmas Santa story. So going back to that, could someone say, for example, that if my children or when my children are old enough to understand that Santa isn't real and they would be old enough to understand why I would say that Santa is real, even though he isn't, would they not then arguably be able to say, oh, well, I understand that he's not real and I understand why you said that he was in the interest of preserving something like childhood joy and that sort of that sort of indescribable experience of going down on Christmas morning and it's this is sort of magic in the air so would you not say that that specific or that reasoning behind justifying lying or white lying in some cases would then actually apply to Santa quite well so yes I think that in many circumstances that's exactly the right way to describe what's going on so that when you're old enough you can look back on what your parents were doing and appreciate that this was something they did with your best interests in mind. But often, the point at which a child discovers the truth about Santa Claus is a point where they may not yet have the subtlety to appreciate what's gone on. So even if in a few years' time they would, in that initial moment of discovery, they might not. That's certainly how it was for my cousin when I disclosed the fictionality of Santa Claus, and she was crushed by this and also, you know, deeply suspicious of what her parents were up to in this moment. I'm, I'm interested to know your opinion on what, what you think is worse, letting a child believe in a falsehood or actively telling them that a falsehood is real? Or is there no difference? I do think there is a difference. I think letting someone believe something that isn't true, but that is harmless to them, is entirely consistent with having their best interests at heart. And there isn't any point at which we might step back and say, oh, isn't that malicious of you? Whereas actively participating in creating beliefs in them, then they'll need at some point to deconstruct. That places a different kind of burden on them. Even if that, um, even if that seems just as harmless? I guess one question is, is it just as harmless? And the other question is whether, even if it's just as harmless, there isn't a difference in our relationship that is created by me not saying anything when I think you've come to believe something that's not true versus me actively feeding you a line. 
Would we need to make, in this case, sort of like a distinction between short-term best interests and long-term best interests? So would I have to be making sort of a utilitarian calculation in my mind, weighing up, okay, I could potentially tell this person a lie to make them feel better in the long term, but then they wouldn't, they wouldn't have a piece of information. Am I supposed to be weighing that up in my mind? So there are two things I want to pull apart in that. One aspect is, am I weighing up consequences? And I want to say with respect to that, the answer is often yes. That needn't commit me to thinking that consequences are the only thing that matters, but consequences are one of the things that matters. And we need to take that into account in our behavior. The second thing, though, is a question about what I do in a particular moment where I'm preparing to act. And I certainly don't think that at every moment someone needs to be weighing up the consequences of their actions. I don't need to deliberate characteristically about whether it's in my friend's best interests for me to speak truthfully to them or to answer their questions transparently. I just know that that's what being a good friend consists in, right? And so I recognize I'm their friend. This is how our relationship is. And I act consistently with our relationship and me being a friend. But there are those moments where even what we can ordinarily take for granted, even what's standardly true, may not hold in this instance. And in those kinds of moments, then I will often find myself in that brief deliberation. Now, of course, our society is one in which it accepts that there are moments where dissembling is permitted and consistent with or even promotive of good friendship. And we've been socialized long enough to recognize the difference between the cases where it's okay for us to depart from the truth because that'll be good for our friend and those moments where we're just doing it for self-serving reasons to avoid the discomfort of speaking an uncomfortable truth. Um, and so we recognize, right, there's this whole area, most areas of intimate relationships where people can rely on me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. And then there's this small domain in those kinds of relationships where sometimes it, I'll be called upon to avoid speaking certain kinds of truths. And then there's this separate domain, namely the relations I have with people who aren't intimates. And in that domain, again, we're going to carve up the spaces where it's assumed that people can rely on me. You stop and ask me in the street for the time or the directions. And it's expected that I'm going to give you the time or the directions. But if you stop and ask me in the street, about details of my personal life, I may not be obliged to share that same information with you as transparently. So let's circle back around to Santa Claus and a little more of Santa in my household. <laughs> my household was a household that was imaginatively vibrant. My children had active imaginations that was encouraged. Stories were part of their earliest memories. And we would sit and read with them every day, often for hours. So there were lots and lots of characters that 
populated our imaginative landscape. Some of these were fairies, and some of these were elves, and some of these were hobbits. And so there was plenty of space for imaginative play and for that imaginative play to be populated by the characters that they'd encountered in, in the stories that had been read them and characters of their own creation or of their parents' creation. And sometimes that imaginative play involved somebody taking on the role of a fairy um, or one of my wife's favorite roles was the role of the marble-eyed meanie. Um, <laughs> she would put marbles in front of her eyes and squeeze her <laughs> eyes shut around the marbles. And then she would speak in a really gruff voice to the children and try and convince the children to do various and sundry naughty things. <laughs> and the children would respond by saying, no, no, we can't do that. And explaining why it would be bad for them to do that why they shouldn't pull the cat's tail or their sister's hair or whatever. And the, you know, popping into and popping out of the marble-eyed meanie character was just a matter of mom stepping out the door of the room and taking the marbles out and then stepping back into the room. There was never a moment where they were really in question. Is that really mom? Or is there somebody else there? Right. But they could wholeheartedly engage in the acting out of the tale. And with the Santa Claus story, it was much the same way. It was also enriched by the fact that we were raising the children in New Zealand. And lots of the storybooks that they would get from their grandparents in the States were Santa in the snow, right? But of course, New Zealand Christmas is held in summer rather than winter. Santa dressed up in big red fur-lined capes or whatever made absolutely no sense. And one of our favorite storybooks around that time of year, I'm going to show you now. <laughs> A Kiwi Night Before Christmas. That looks fantastic. <laughs> so in The Kiwi Night Before Christmas, Santa's not in a sleigh drawn by reindeer. Santa's on a small tractor that is being flown around by some magical sheep. And so you could kind of appreciate in the midst of the sharing of the story, the creative things that the author had done to adapt the story from the Northern Hemisphere that had been inherited and turn it into something localized. And so it felt like we got all of the joys out of the Santa story with the kids without ever needing to take the imaginative engagement that one step further, where we really tried to persuade them that the character on the stage wasn't just a character, but was a real person. They could always see that there was an actor involved. And what we were doing was we were engaging in that joyous activity of playing a role without the delight of imagination in any way being compromised. They're now teenagers, and I just touched base with them, given that we were having this conversation, to ask if they felt like their life had been ruined in some important way, or I'd stolen their childhood from them. And of course, it's the only thing they know, so I might have gotten off easy. Maybe I really did ruin their childhood, and they just don't know it. But each of them at least currently believes that their childhood was not ruined as a result of only 
ever playing Santa rather than believing Santa. Or perhaps they have weighed up the <laughs> consequences of lying to you versus telling you the truth and decided that would be in everyone's <laughs> best interest to just say that. Yeah, <laughs> another real possibility. Oh, it was surprisingly much less Grinch-like of a position than I had anticipated. <laughs> you you didn't have any um, conversations with your children then of them coming home and saying, oh, such and such that Santa is real and... You sat down and said, well, time for a philosophical discussion here. So we did draw to them the importance of not <laughs> crashing the party for their friends. Right. Um, I learned that lesson with my cousins, so I didn't <laughs> want them to have to learn it themselves. Uh, but there were moments where someone would come home and say, but my friend believes Santa is real. And... We would then talk about the other characters in stories that we appreciated and ask, so are they real? Well, in one sense, very much, but not like mom and dad are real. There are different kinds of being real that we're interested in. And the kind of being real that we need for Santa is the kind of being real that we needed for Harry Potter or Bilbo Baggins. I, I, as you were saying that, it was reminding me of a quote from Harry Potter where I think it's Dumbledore says to Harry, um, of course this is happening in your head, but why should that not mean that it's not real? That was just a, a nice, <laughs> nice little quote to insert there to sum up what you just said. One of my favourite moments in book seven. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciated, I was wondering exactly the same thing about how then do you draw the line between a young child who might then, as you say, spoil the party for everyone else. And I can imagine that any school teachers that your children had were probably very happy to not have a class full of crying children who are faced yeah. with brutal honesty. But um, yeah, that would be a fun parents evening, being like, your child's doing brilliantly, <laughs> except for the fact they're ruining Christmas for everyone. <laughs> yeah, so I, in preparation for this uh, interview, I recall. Something like Kant saying that lying, having quite a controversial view on lying, I'm not going to try and butcher it by trying to summarise it, but um, are there any philosophers who have had very controversial or counterintuitive opinions towards lying who might say that you should outright say to your child, Santa's not real and you should tell all of your friends? So Kant is probably the best example. <laughs> He's of the mind that any departure from the truth at the level of the proposition uttered is something that can't be universalized and thus is going to be something that is contrary to the moral spirit. He takes it so far as to think that it includes even what we might say to the murderer at the door who is asking whether someone is hiding inside your house. And he thinks even in that context, we're not allowed to tell them anything other than what is, strictly speaking, the thing we believe to be true. And there's a reason that Kant is notorious for this view, because most of us think, no, no, the murderer <laughs> at the door is not someone who deserves truth from me. We don't have that kind of relationship, so I'm not under any obligation. Kant, he thinks it's a moral obligation, that that's the only obligation that's relevant when speaking to the murderer at the door. He thinks, if I tell the murderer at the door, yes, the person you're looking for is in the back room, 
and the murderer goes back there and kills the person, then the blame lies entirely on the murderer. But if I tell the murderer, no, no, my friend isn't here, and the murderer goes away, but my friend, unbeknownst to me, is sneaking out the back window, and the murderer catches him in the act and then kills him, that I'm to blame for my friend's death in that instance, um, not just the murderer being to blame. So by departing from the truth, I have engaged in a wrongful action and can be caught up in the consequences of that wrong action. So for him, the crucial factor isn't, does my friend live or die? The crucial factor is, did I speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? This can't um, extend that to saying nothing. So what you were talking about before with the difference between lying and dissemblance, or dissemblance would include withholding information, would Kant say, um, if you don't say anything, is that still lying? So that would be consistent with the categorical imperative. It's possible to universalize not answering a question if I'm not under an obligation to answer that question. So yeah, you know, your run-of-the-mill axe murderer is not owed an answer by me. But if I do answer, I have to answer the truth. I do quite like how um, I accidentally asked a question which took us from happily talking about Santa Claus to talking about murderers at the door. Um, but um, I have really, really enjoyed this discussion and I really hope our listeners have too. Festive philosophizing, maybe that's what we'll call this. But thank you so much for talking to us. And we're really excited to talk about your research in a future episode. So our listeners can get super excited about that. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.